Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. Be back in just a few seconds with Boris Kagaliski. We're going to talk more about Russia and the invasion of Ukraine. Please don't forget to subscribe if you're on YouTube, to hit the donate button, come on over to the website. It's, by the way, for people watching on YouTube, the website's by far a better place to watch because there is some material there that doesn't appear on uh, YouTube. For example, text articles and other things. Um, be back in just a few seconds. The last time I interviewed Boris Kargalitsky, there was a lot of response that Boris wasn't emphasizing enough or denouncing enough uh, the role of NATO in what many people describe as a provocation of Russia into the invasion, into invading Ukraine. Um, they talk about the NATOization of Ukraine in terms of the extent to which Ukraine was armed by the US and, and Europe uh, prior to the invasion. And they say, even though it's not a formal member of NATO and can't uh, trigger Article 5 and the uh, armed defense of Ukraine by NATO, uh, it comes right up to the edge of that. And that that was a provocation that eventually, after many attempts to negotiate uh, this uh, by Putin's government, uh, Putin was essentially forced or provoked into this uh, invasion. Uh, that's uh, certainly what Russia says itself. Uh, Putin has said this, uh, his foreign ministers and others have said it. And there's people on the left, especially in the global south, uh, you can hear this argument made. Um, so I wanted to start the interview by giving Boris uh, a chance to respond to that. So once again, Bor Bor Boris Kargalitsky, he's a well-known commentator on Russian politics and society. Boris was a deputy to the Moscow City Soviet between 1990 and 1993, during which time he was a member of the executive of the Socialist Party of Russia. He's co-founder of the Party of Labor and advisor to the chairperson of the Federation of Independent Trade Unions of Russia. Previously, he was a student of art criticism and was imprisoned for two years for anti-Soviet activities. Boris's books include Empire of the Periphery, Russia and the World System, also Russia under Yeltsin and Putin, Neoliberal Autocracy, and New Realism, New Barbarism, The Crisis of Capitalism. In 2021, Kargalitsky was sentenced to 10 days in jail for sharing content on social media, promoting unpermitted protests by the Communist Party against the results of then Russia's recent parliamentary elections. Uh, Boris has the distinction of having been put in jail by just about every government for the last few decades. He's currently a professor at Moscow Higher School for Social and Economic Sciences and editor of RABCOR, a daily Russian journal and YouTube channel of left-wing debate. And he joins us from Moscow. Thanks very much for joining us again, Boris. Great seeing you, Paul. So, so the, there are many comments on our website, YouTube, and, and such. Um, that, that thought you were underestimating uh, the role of NATO and the Americans in, in provoking this. And I would say that there's two different categories of this, uh, provoking the invasion because of the arming of Ukraine, um, the talk of including, uh, certainly including Ukraine in the EU, and talk about including it in NATO, although I, I think it's, it should have been obvious to everybody that there was no way they were going to get consensus amongst NATO countries uh, to include Ukraine in NATO. 
at the same time, there was a lot of arming of Ukraine prior to the invasion. Um, so how do you assess, now let, before I ask the question, go, I just advise everyone, go back and watch part one if you haven't, uh, because Boris did address this question uh, to a large extent, essentially saying that the invasion was driven by uh, domestic politics and, and increasing unpopularity of both the Putin government and the Russian oligarchy. Uh, but that said, Boris, uh, how do you assess the role of NATO and, and the West in the Ukrainian war? Well, first of all, I think there is a major confusion here. Because uh, if uh, I say, I'm saying uh, that uh, NATO didn't play a major role in, in kind of launching and provoking this particular conflict, it doesn't mean I'm saying anything positive about NATO. Because these are two different things. Uh, NATO plays uh, definitely a very negative role uh, in Europe and in the world in the sense that it is a, a factor of global militarization. And in that sense, definitely we have to oppose NATO. But uh, the problem is not here. The problem is elsewhere. The problem is to analyze particular facts which led to this particular conflict. And here the picture is very different because, yes, NATO expansion could have been seen as a major uh, challenge uh, to Russian security. And by the way, uh, before the war, uh, for a very long period of time, once I was interviewed by foreign uh, journalists, I kept saying that there were uh, Russian security concerns which uh, should have been taken seriously. However, the irony is that Russian government didn't take these concerns seriously. Listen, the most interesting point here, because uh, they didn't really react uh, strongly except uh, uh, just uh, making some formal statements uh, to their expansion of NATO into the Baltic republics, for example, which is something uh, technically much more serious than the negotiations about Ukraine, because uh, in the, the Baltic republics, among other things, um, not only were uh, kind of uh, involved in, in the NATO alliance, uh, but they were also not uh, following the rules um, of the European Union, which they joined. For example, the Russian minority in Latvia and Estonia uh, never managed to get proper rights, which should have been guaranteed according to the uh, documents of the European Union. The European Union didn't do much about it. Neither did Russia, by the way. Russia never tried to do anything seriously at the European level to press, uh, to push uh, these uh, countries. to Boris, Boris, Boris what, could, what, what could they have done they didn't do? Uh, for example, uh, they should have negotiated that with the European Union. They should have... Uh, discuss these issues at the European level, at the level of the European um, Parliament, Euro uh, European, um, uh, the, uh, what's the term, uh, European Parliamentary Assembly, for example, which Russia was a member, um, put that uh, as a major issue for the, uh, the public international debate and so on. It was never done at that level. Uh, actually, uh, they, uh, it's very interesting, they never used uh, the, the huge amount of money which they 
kind of spent on supporting uh, politicians like Marine Le Pen and other far-right politicians, for example, to support Russian cultural activities in Latvia, Lithuania, uh, and Estonia. For example, I had my own experience when I uh, tried to uh, put forward, together with a few colleagues, uh, a project of uh, uh, sending uh, Russian books uh, to uh, Latvian, and Estonian, and Lithuanian libraries, uh, which were quite ready uh, to accept these books. Um, books on political science, uh, books translated from English or German or, or French into, uh, into Russian. So to support Russian cultural activities and Russian cultural life in these countries, uh, that was rejected by Russian government institutions because they said definitely that they were not interested. And in private, they said, there is no way we can steal money out of this project. So the project <laughs> is not... Um, efficient from the point of view of those corrupt officials who considered every project from the point of view how much money could have been stolen from this project. So there was total indifference to the Russian cultural life in these in these countries. Like sometimes you can send some kind of uh, um, I don't know uh, uh, a group of uh, Cossack dancers uh, to Latvia, uh, just also to to show that there was some cultural presence. But once there was any kind of cultural cultural issue which was seriously uh, important for for these communities, uh, Russia completely, Russian officials completely rejected it. The same well, thing, the, but but the, but they did issue some pretty strong statements in the months leading up before the invasion about the eastward expansion of NATO. Uh, where they where they made demands about you know that Ukraine shouldn't be part of NATO. They also wanted uh, some demilitarization of even some of the other countries that were already in NATO. Oh, uh, but actually, uh, these uh, Russian uh, these statements by Putin and his uh, people were themselves more like provocations, but rather more like uh, an attempt to prepare the excuses uh, for their activities, which they already planned. You see, speaking about Ukraine. Uh, again, uh, we have to uh, see two different things. One thing is that what kind of state uh, do we have in Ukraine currently? And Ukrainian state is not the kind of democracy as it is presented in the West. It's uh, a state which represses, for example, um, its leftist groups, a state which really continues repressing leftists, like, for example, Dmitry Jangirov, a good friend of mine, is now under arrest in Kiev, and there are plenty of reasons for us to be very critical uh, about the Ukrainian state. But it doesn't change the fact that it was Putin's Russian uh, army which attacked Ukraine and not the other way around. Full stop. Okay, let me just say, let me ask, shouldn't, shouldn't the Ukrainian government have, have simply outright declared neutrality before the invasion, especially given the fact they were never going to get into NATO anyway. Why not just say so? And, and, and even if it was just an excuse, at least take that excuse away. Actually, there was a lot of debate inside of Ukraine about it. And there were voices uh, which uh, were saying exactly this inside uh, Ukrainian uh, political sphere and even inside the current Ukrainian government. If you follow what was discussed and uh, uh, what was debated uh, within Ukrainian political class, this is exactly the issue. And uh, 
why was the pro-NATO uh, con- uh, current, the pro-NATO's uh, uh, tendency uh, dominant? For a very simple reason, Russia kept threatening uh, Ukrainian state with invasion publicly almost every day. You just turn on Russian television for years, for years, they were speaking and discussing uh, the future invasion into Ukraine. Imagine you are in a country uh, with a neighbor uh, who uh, is uh, discussing publicly uh, the uh, future aggression against uh, against you. Of course, it's quite natural that the, the ones who uh, speak up for the military buildup are um, much more popular than those who are speaking in favor of uh, demilitarization and uh, uh, just uh, uh, disarmament and so on and so on. Uh, so, so it's pretty natural. Uh, one in the West uh, or in the, the global South, people simply do not know what was uh, on Russian television and in Russian state-controlled uh, newspapers, for example. And Ukrainian public, and Ukrainian politician, and Ukrainian citizens of who all know Russian, who all uh, half of whom are Russian speakers, half of whom are Russian speakers. They all knew that and they read it and heard that every day. Uh, By the way, I remember there was this moment when uh, Ukraine uh, banned uh, Russian television channels uh, from being broadcasted in Ukraine. And after that, uh, there was an opinion uh, poll in Ukraine and which which has shown that the opinion of Russia started getting better after Russian television channels were banned in Ukraine. (laughs) Because these channels were extremely jingoistic, and again, speaking to people in global south, in the global south, I should say uh, they probably see that as a, uh, as a struggle against American imperialism or something like that, which has nothing to do with the reality. Because you just, if you hear Russian uh, government propaganda, first of all, it's totally racist. It's totally racist. Uh, uh, it's it's like saying that. Ukrainians are kind of inferior Russians. The Ukrainians are just people who are genetically inferior because these are kind of Russians, but spoiled Russians. Russians who are spoiled genetically because of the presence of of, of, uh, Tatar or Western or some other genes in their blood and so on. So that's what you get on television. That's what you get daily, you know. Uh, that Ukrainian culture doesn't have the right to exist, and so the, the very existence of Ukrainian language as culture is, a, is this is an existential threat uh, to the existence of Russia, and it's also very a uh, new colonialist in the sense it's like an attempt to pull back a former colony into the empire. Uh, again, I, I should say it's very much a propaganda. It's very much a propaganda. I'm not saying that that. Uh, that's that's the major motivation for the Russian government, because I, I told you before that the major motivations uh, for the Russian government are domestic. Uh, the main, major motive, motives are, are domestic. But uh, just imagine you're an Ukrainian and you turn on uh, television or internet or a newspaper, and what you get there is a real wave of aggression, a wave of racist aggression against not only your government or your state, but also your country, uh, your culture, your language, uh, and so on and so on. So, and that explains uh, that uh, within this context, 
the anti-Russian uh, groups within Ukrainian uh, elite, which are quite reactionary, by the way, had the upper hand. And uh, it also uh, creates the, uh, the uh, atmosphere within which uh, for these groups, these reactionary groups, it's getting extremely easy to accuse anyone on the left or anybody who represents even the liberal left or the center left uh, to be kind of Russian agents or spies and so on, because that creates this atmosphere, which is totally uh, of the hysteria, of the hysteria of their, uh, of their um, anger and uh, uh, the atmosphere of fear also. But this atmosphere was very much created by the Russian propaganda itself. This is something which has to be uh, uh, understood in the West. Which so if one of these, if one of the objectives of the Russian invasion was supposedly denazification of Ukraine, it sounds like you're saying, if anything, it might have strengthened the Nazification of Ukraine. Sure, it did. Though, interestingly enough, now the situation in Ukraine is much more uh, complicated because uh, if you are getting back into the uh, to the Ukrainian uh, politics, it's becoming much more democratic and pluralistic now, these days, during the war, than it used to be before the war. Why? For a very simple reason. Who is fighting? Who has the weapons? By the way, speaking about uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, the militarization of Ukraine and about uh, weapons being sent to Ukraine, actually, uh, well, this is a huge exaggeration because most there was a lot of, uh, of weapons sent, but these were mainly weapons which could be used for guerrilla warfare. Uh, so like uh, javelin um, uh, systems and uh, sometimes singer systems, the kind of weapons which used to be sent by Americans to Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion into Afghanistan and so on. So because the West was not planning <laughs> that Ukrainian army was going to survive the war. They were not expecting Ukraine to survive as a country. They were expecting that Ukraine would uh, uh, would be uh, occupied. And then, of course, like in Afghanistan, they would be supplying some kind of guerrilla forces, uh, uh, also creating problems for the, for the Russian troops and so on. That was the Western strategy, uh, which didn't happen because Ukrainian army, which was mainly... Uh, fighting with its own uh, hardware. Yeah, you know, there, there's a very interesting statistic that supports what you're saying. Uh, pr prior to 2014, 2015, Ukraine was in the top 10, I think it was eight or ninth largest arms exporter in the world. But after that, it dropped out of the top 10 arms exporters in the world not because it was producing less arms, but because the arms were staying in Ukraine and building up the uh, military capacity of the Ukrainian army. Exactly, that's the point. Ukrainian army was uh, happened to become uh, a quite a considerable fighting force exactly because it was rearming itself massively. So it was not the West which was arming Ukraine, but it was Ukraine which was rearming itself massively. And it was Ukrainian hardware, including, interestingly enough, some high-tech hardware, which uh, happens uh, to be superior to what is produced in Russia uh, and cheaper, much cheaper, much um, more effective. And uh, that uh, was a big surprise, both for Russian uh, generals and for Western military experts, uh, uh, that Ukraine happened to become 
um, capable uh, of fighting back quite successfully. And then there was a long period of discussion between Ukrainian um, government and, and NATO and Western powers about getting uh, proper military hardware, which is arriving to Ukraine just now. So after four months of fighting, heavy fighting, after the bombing of uh, Kiev and Kharkov and uh, after the, 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 the massacre in Bucha and so on, even two months after the massacre in Bucha, Ukraine didn't get much of the hardware it was asking for. Uh, so it's not that the West was um, arming Ukraine massively. On the contrary, uh, the West was quite cynical about probably using Ukraine uh, for uh, its own purposes, but not very much about helping Ukraine. These are different things. Helping Ukraine and using Ukraine are two very different things. But coming back to the issue, I, 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 I insist, I, I want to continue. There is a very important issue. Uh, what's happening now with, uh, with the Ukrainian political class and pol Ukrainian politics in general? Because uh, by, uh, by the end of February, it was very clear that the nationalists, the, the ethnic nationalists, uh, the right-wing uh, tendencies within Ukrainian uh, political, political spectrum, were definitely having the upper hand. And uh, it was very clear that Zelensky government was making one concession to them after another concession. So, so they were really, uh, Zelensky government is not a nationalist government, but it was retreating, uh, systematically retreating uh, uh, on, on, on major issues. And um, now the situation started getting uh, more complex. I'm not saying that it's um, getting much better. I'm saying it's getting much more complex, much more contradictory in the sense that there is, a now, there is now a, a growing force and a, and a force which is more and more vocal which is uh, supporting the idea of reinventing the Ukrainian state and reinventing the Ukrainian state as, on a non-nationalist basis. Why? First of all, why? Second, who are these people? Uh, why is, uh, uh, it's very clear. Uh, the army which is fighting against Russians is mostly Russian speaking. The generals, the soldiers, the officers, the heroes of Ukraine, the ones who are presented as the, as the, the the faces of the Ukrainian resistance. Most of these people are not only Russian speakers, most many of them are ethnic Russians who are proud to be Russians, who say that they're Russians, you know. Uh, uh, they're Ukrainian Russians, okay? They say, they keep saying they are Ukrainian Russians. Uh, and that changes the situation because there are not so many uh, heroes who can represent Ukrainian, uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, nationalism with the exception of the Azov, uh, as of um, uh, regiment in Mariupol, who was really a nationalist regiment. These are these are people who are uh, either self-described or described as Nazis, very far right. At least at least were at the. They're not Nazis, but they were definitely far right. They were definitely far right. They were as far right as most of the Trumpists. Uh, they were they were very much like Trump supporters. I mean, a kind of Christian nationalist. Sure, sure. They were like Trump supporters or Marine Le Pen supporters, definitely. That was definitely a battalion and then a regiment organized by the far right. The problem with them is that most of these people do not speak Ukrainian. 
they are all the most so so in that sense even when you see the face of ukrainian ethnic nationalism and then you uh, then these people appear on on uh, on the video and either they uh, they speak very poor ukrainian or they speak russian uh so so in, th in that sense the uh, the actual face of the ukrainian resistance even when it is presented by the the right wing by the far right uh, is associated with the, with the Russian-speaking population of the East. So, so in that sense, one thing that Russian speakers are now armed with, uh, uh, they're organized and armed. Then you have the so-called territorial, territorial defense, territorial territorial defense, territorial defense force. It's a kind of public uh, um, uh, public organization, uh, this kind of uh, popular militia organized to, to fight back against the invasion. Where are these people? They're all in Eastern and Southern regions of Ukraine. So these forces, armed forces, new armed forces, we have hundreds of thousands of people who either got weapons or got access to weapons. Who are these people? These are Russian speakers. And uh, so and that's, that changed the balance of forces because if you take the situation before February 24th, then everybody who was armed and organized were uh, uh, people on the far right, and there were either these uh, volunteer battalions, which were far right, and which were, of course, also very much promoting this Ukrainian nationalist agenda. Uh, and there were groups from uh, the west of Ukraine who were uh, kind of parachuted uh, to the east uh, just to suppress uh, pro-Russian movements and uh, tendencies there and who terrorized local population very often. There were people, not necessarily from the West, but sometimes from the West, sometimes from the East, but who joined um, ethnic nationalists uh, and who terrorized local population. Now there is no way you can do it because local population is armed itself. So, so in that sense, it changed the balance of forces within Ukrainian society massively. So it's a very in, it's a very different society these days. Now coming to the actual voices, who are these people who are speaking in favor of um, of more balanced or more kind of in, 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 integrative uh, Ukrainian uh, state? Uh, actually, it's very interesting because interesting because there are two tendencies developing uh, simultaneously. Because on the one hand, you can see some attempts to cancel Russian culture, to pull, pull down the status. Monuments. Uh, there are attempts to uh, introduce new textbooks which represent Russians as uh, existential enemies, very much like Russian uh, textbooks represent Ukraine. So there are similar textbooks introduced in Ukraine also. So you can see this continuing offensive of the far right, which which is which didn't stop. It continues. It continues, and it's getting the new levels. But at the very same time. Uh, there are uh, people in Kyiv, uh, close to Zelensky administration, close to the military, who are speaking out uh, publicly uh, against that. And who are these people? First of all, let's see uh, who is the most vocal person. Is um... be, be, before you, before you get to that, I'm just confused on something here. If if much of the far right speaks Russian, then who's enforcing the laws to suppress Russian culture? Uh, that's the that's the biggest irony. Many of these people who do not speak Ukrainian at the same time are supporting their uh, idea of suppressing Russian language for the ideological uh, reasons. 
because uh, and then that's exactly the, that's that's what Ukraine is about because Ukraine is it's a very special place when you can find people who are uh, denouncing Russian culture and promoting Ukrainian culture who do not speak proper Ukrainian they speak terrible Ukrainian or they don't speak Ukrainian language at all then you have you can see some people who speak perfect Ukrainian who are very much uh, within the Ukrainian culture who are coming from Lviv from the throne of the West from the Ukrainian speaking West and who will tell you well I have no problems with Russian language I, I'm okay with Russian culture that, that's fine with me so so, so it's it, it, uh, the language issue is very much an ideological issue it's not necessarily the the actual issue about the language you speak but it's the language which you consider to be appropriate to express specific political message. Uh, and uh, that's very much the, the contradiction because again, Zelensky uh, didn't speak Ukrainian language before he became the president. Then he had to learn Ukrainian language, you know? Uh, and, um, and that's very, and that's, you know, the problem here is that in Ukraine, it is considered to be normal. Once you get elected to the uh, to a top position in, in the bureaucracy, you have to learn the language, not the other way around. So nobody okay, has yeah. to know the language. Right. You get elected, but once you get elected, you have to learn the language. It's very confusing. All right, you were about to say the voices who are speaking out for a kind of different, a new kind of Ukrainian state. Uh, okay, so let's let's look at these voices. So, so the most prominent voice. Uh, so. Let's speak about these voices. So the most prominent voice uh, is uh, Alexei Aristovich, who is the, uh, the advisor to Zelensky on the military issues, but who is considered to be the liaison person between the military and uh, the, the civilian government. And it's interesting because he is a military officer, but also a kind of public intellectual, which is a very rare case. Uh, I, I really really very much impressed by that because it's not very often that you get a professional military who is a public intellectual at the same time uh, and he's really really quite competent he he, he speaks about literature uh, he speaks about uh, uh, history sometimes makes mistakes though <laughs> on history but uh, uh, he's a Russian speaker and he appears on uh, in, on the internet on television uh, daily, daily, sometimes three or four times a day, uh, with the current news, with the analysis, and so on. Uh, and he is considered now to be the, the second most uh, most popular and most trusted figure uh, in uh, um, in Ukraine, most uh, kind of influential figure in Ukraine. By the way, do you know who's the first one? The first one is the dog called Patron. <laughs> uh, more, more the, he's, the dog is more popular than Zelensky? Uh, by far, by far. By far. Whose dog is that? Uh, the dog Patron is, uh, uh, is a dog which is uh, uh, involved in demining uh, activities with, uh, with the Ukrainian army. And the dog, it appears also uh, on the internet almost daily uh, with, uh, with the news about, uh, um, about demining of the, uh, of the areas which were affected by the military uh, activities. 
and then um, in the name of the dog, they report, uh, for example, uh, how dangerous are particular types of mines or shells, uh, and so what what you should do when you discover a shell or a mine or a, or, or some some other explosive device anywhere. So so the dog also appears on the, on the social media daily. And the dog is now considered to be the most, the most popular character on social media by far. So when they compared, compared the dog patron with Zelensky and Aristovich, uh, suddenly they discovered that the dog is much by far more popular than any of the politicians. Uh, so this is, by the, by the way, I think it's very telling. What, what do you think about politicians also? Well, I, I'm sure there's many dogs that would beat most of the American leaders in popularity polls too. But anyway, go ahead. So who is this guy then? What does he stand for? So, so Alexei Aristovich is, uh, as I told you before, uh, Alexei Aristovich is the liaison person between the military and the, uh, and the, uh, and the civilian administration. He's also the major, the most popular commentator, human commentator, and putting, a, putting aside the dog Petron, who's the most popular human commentator uh, on, uh, uh, on Ukrainian social media, uh, television on, and, uh, and internet. Uh, he's, he speaks Russian all the time. His he, Ukrainian is okay. He can speak Ukrainian. He's when he when he makes public statements as a as a as an official, he makes these public statements in Ukrainian. But all the all other statements are made in Russian, and he's uh, and he keeps uh, attacking Ukrainianization almost every day, saying, "Well, uh, we what we need to achieve, we need to achieve equality between languages and and communities, and unless we." accept Russian language as part of Ukraine, we are not going to win this conflict. All right. So this guy is pushing back against Ukrainianization, and he's he's a very popular politician and military leader. Uh, now many people say that he is going to be the next president. Uh, his popularity is, is uh, really skyrocketing. And uh, not only this, not only that he is speaking about the, the uh, he is speaking about the, the that the small Ukrainian culture should embrace the big Russian culture. Uh, so that Russia is not only physically bigger, it has a bigger history and a bigger culture, but Ukraine should not reject this culture, it should embrace it and appropriate it and integrate it into the Ukraine within, within a sovereign Ukraine. Well, yes, within a sovereign Ukraine, Ukraine identity. That's the message. Uh, second, interestingly enough, he's, he's very critical of NATO. Uh, to some extent, though, um, blaming NATO for not supporting Ukraine properly, of course, uh, but also very critical of the West. And, uh, on the so by, by, by approaching it the way he is, it helps to unify the Russian and Ukrainian speaking peoples in a war against the Russian invasion. Yes, by the way, but it's also very typical that every time he speaks about Russia, he says, uh, I'm not speaking about Russia. I'm speaking about Putin, the Putin regime. Hmm. So, so we are not fighting against Russia, we are fighting against Putin's regime. So that's also very, a very interesting statement. He keeps repeating time and again. Uh, then, uh, just recently, it was a very a scandalous thing because uh, Dmitry Bukov, who is a very well-known Russian writer, very, very well-known Russian writer who's, who emigrated from Russia, and he uh, recently visited Kiev. 
and they had a show together with Aristovich. They appeared together on, 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 I think, on, on YouTube. And then suddenly, and they discussed Russian literature and so on and so on. And then suddenly Aristovich said, Soviet Union was the best thing which ever happened in Ukrainian history. It was the God's blessing that we were part of the Soviet Union. Uh, that was a big scandal, actually, because Ukrainian state tends to say that we have nothing to do with the Soviet Union. We were always oppressed. We were always victims of uh, of Stalinism, communism, and so on and so on. Uh, then this guy suddenly says, "Look, Soviet Union was best uh, the best episode of our history." And why does he say that? Well, because he's undermining the nationalist discourse. Uh, he's not a leftist. He's not a leftist. He's systematically, consciously undermining uh, the nationalist discourse. The also, far right, the far right nationalist. Yeah, so yeah. Th- just to, so let me just to put a pin on this. Zelensky has been backing up, compromising, capitulating to the right nationalists, where this yes. guy is standing up to them. Exactly, exactly. And uh, by the way, he's Belarusian by ethnic, ethnically. She is Belarusian. Uh. He's Belarusian, and he and his. Well, let me well let me go back to this point of Zelensky compromising, capitulating to the far right, because one of the justifications for the Russian invasion was that when Zelensky was elected in the for in the beginning, part of his a promise in the election was a peaceful resolution of the Donbas problem. Uh, which people thought would have been a negotiation of some kind, a level of autonomy for Donbass. Then there was the Minsk Agreement 1 and 2. And one of the justifications for this invasion that comes from Putin is that, one, Ukraine never implemented the Minsk Agreements, which would have given more autonomy uh, to Donbass. And two, that the uh, strengthening of the Ukrainian military forces uh, and the and the increased militarization of Ukraine, uh, and as we talked about, a lot of that was actually domestic Ukrainian production. But still, that 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 beefing up was actually meant as a preparation for Ukrainian invasion of uh, the independent republics, autonomous republics in Donbas, and thus becomes one of the justifications for the invasion. So is there some truth to all of that? Uh, there is. There is. Uh, at least in one sense that uh, Zelensky government was not up to its promises. It was definitely not carrying out what was expected. Not necessarily promised, though. Sometimes expected, you know, because certain things were never articulated. By, but voting for Zelensky, people expected certain things to happen, and they didn't happen. And as I told you before, Zelensky was systematically capitulating to the far right. He was elected by the people who wanted him to stand up against the far right, and he did exactly the opposite. He was retreating and capitulating. And in that sense, Zelensky does share the responsibility for what is happening. Just it's not the equal responsibility. Uh, Of course, you should not confuse the one who is responsible for not uh, doing the right thing with somebody who is responsible for doing the wrong thing. You see, this is the, the big difference. Uh, whatever you say about strengthening of the Ukrainian military force, it was by far weaker than the Russian force. Okay, let's put it differently. Uh, 
even if we imagine that Ukraine was planning to invade Donetsk and Lugansk, which is not true, but even if we were uh, accepting that kind of claim, it doesn't justify the invasion of Russian army into Ukraine. Because what you could do, you could simply send more troops, uh, Russian troops, to protect Lugansk and Donetsk from a possible invasion. Full stop. Uh, actually, Russia had the capacity to protect these territories. And uh, it doesn't mean that the only way to protect these territories was to occupy some other territories. So it's very much the post factum justification, which is very typical for every aggression, for every aggressor. Uh, in the last 100 years, it's very typical that most aggressors are explaining their behavior by saying, well, okay, if we didn't do that, the other side would have done this. Uh, but that's uh, not how things are done in the real world. In the real world, if we want somebody to uh, abstain from, uh, say, invading uh, a neighboring country, you should be helping the neighboring country, not attacking the other country, you see? Uh, and uh, of course, that's another reason why, for example, voting for the recognition of Donetsk and Lugansk in the Russian parliament itself uh, didn't necessarily lead to a major war. There was still a chance to avoid a major war. One option was to send some troops uh, there just to prevent Ukrainian attack if it were uh, a real danger, which it was. Uh, actually, there was not much fighting going on uh, along the uh, uh, Lugansk and Donetsk uh, de facto frontier. The number of civilian casualties under Zelensky government was diminishing, that's true, uh, even though there was no real attempt uh, to get some peace settlement or some understanding, mutual understanding with the people in Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, nevertheless, the actual fighting was decreasing systematically. Yeah, the, uh, the OSCE uh, reports confirm that uh, it was diminishing greatly from 2018 on. Exactly. So, so, the, so the point is that, of course, again, uh, Zelensky uh, didn't use the opportunity he, um, he got initially when got, he got elected, especially in 2019, when uh, there was no reason for uh, Ukrainian uh, public to be so much afraid of the uh, of the Russian invasion because it was five years after their uh, original crisis in uh, in Lugansk and Donetsk and um, well the situation was relatively calm by then so what could have been done by Zelensky was uh, some kind of move towards reconciliation some kind of cultural gestures. Uh, some kind of people's diplomacy, uh, some kind of a, attempts to start uh, not necessarily formal negotiations, but at least informal contacts with the other side, uh, showing that their concerns were taken seriously. Now, uh, now, the, now the United States, in, in the weeks leading up to the invasion, even months, um, Certainly could have, and there were even commentators on some of the talk shows, you know, some of the foreign policy pundits, even coming from the right, who said that there is no way uh, Ukraine's ever going to really be part of NATO. 
the Biden administration certainly could have said something like that. They could have said, look, everyone knows we're never getting consensus on Ukraine getting into NATO. And the Americans could have taken that off the table. Uh, but they didn't, which is one of the arguments that even though it wasn't a, perhaps, as you're saying, a major, the factor why the Russians invaded, uh, the Americans must have been somewhat pleased with it all in the final analysis because they, they could have done something to mitigate the excuses for invasion and for quite the opposite. Uh, they seem to help provoke it. Uh, quite possible. Uh, though I think that uh, the invasion uh, should have happened anyhow uh, because of the domestic reasons. As I told you before, there were lots of reasons to start some uh, minor war which happened to become a major war. They didn't expect the war to be so serious, to be so, so, uh, so massive, so, 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 uh, so long and so on. They definitely wanted some kind of short um, operation. But when Putin spoke about a special military operation, I think we have to take it honest, uh, too seriously. Uh, I think he was quite honest uh, in the sense that he wanted a short military operation destroying Ukrainian army and Ukrainian state within days or hours, which didn't happen. So that was a major miscalculation. That was a major and fatal mistake. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I don't think that they planned for a major war. They were not ready for a major long-term war. Uh, but uh, let's get back to the original issue. What I'm saying is that now the situation changed. Now, situation changed that within the Ukrainian military, there is a growing tendency towards uh, uh, reshaping, re, uh, uh, rearranging the Ukrainian state. Uh, so, in that sense, the military now in Ukraine became they became heroes, and they became popular, and they are now going to play a major political role. That's why uh, it's very interesting that the figure of Aristovich is emerging. Uh, well, let, let me get back to this because I think it's an important point, at least. Uh, certainly for the Western audiences. Um, United States could have done more uh, Definitely. Definitely. To, to prevent this. And, and, and quite the contrary, uh, they, they actually seem to egg it on. And, and now we can see why, perhaps, because uh, they, they must be smiling ear to ear, uh, except and I want to do this more in the next interview we do, because the economic sanctions are affecting the West, I think, far more than the West ever expected. But that said, um, the Americans certainly hoped and thought this would weaken and perhaps uh, become the overthrow of Putin. And they didn't care how many Ukrainians died in the course of all this. Uh, well, first of all, we have to understand there are no good guys in this story. There are no good guys uh, among American politicians, at least among the top American politicians. And there are no good guys among Russian or Ukrainian uh, top politicians. And, uh, yeah, this is a fight amongst oligarchs. Yes, uh, uh, within capitalism, within the bourgeoisie, within, among the oligarchs and so on. So, so you know, that, that's how it is. That's the kind of world we are in. Uh, we don't have the, the the positive hero. Even when I'm speaking about Aristovich with a lot of admiration, because he's making statements which really are game-changing, we should know that Aristovich is also part of this uh, uh, of, of this elite and very much part of this uh, of this milieu 
which is uh, running the Ukraine these days. Uh, but it's very interesting that he is moving towards uh, this kind of uh, this kind of agenda uh, or this kind of uh, um, uh, integrationist uh, agenda. But, but do you not think the Americans saw the opportunity for what people describe as another Afghanistan of sucking the Soviets into Afghanistan? We're going to suck the Russians into Ukraine. Uh, that was probably, I don't know much about what was happening in Washington. Uh, I'm sure that was at least part of the issue. At least that was an, an option which they considered to be quite quite okay. For and them. let me say, when I say that, you, Putin has the choice not to be sucked in. It's not like he's ignorant of, of what, this, what the plans on the other side are. Uh, they didn't care. I think they didn't care. They didn't care. Nobody cared that much about Ukraine. You see, that's the problem. Nobody cared about Ukrainians. Uh, Putin's uh, team was pretty sure that they were going to defeat Ukraine very fast. And they didn't care about a possible guerrilla war uh, in Ukraine because um, they probably thought of uh, uh, maybe establishing some kind of puppet government there and then retreating uh, so that Ukrainians would fight each other later after the war. Uh, and, and by the way, that's very much part of the Ukrainian tradition itself. If you, are, if you look at the Ukrainian history, you see there was not so much fighting against Russians. There was a lot of fighting among the Ukrainians with, uh, say, Russians backing one side against another and, and so on. Uh, so um, that was very much part of their, of their understanding of, of, I mean, Russia's uh, leaders' understanding of the situation, which was uh, totally mis erroneous. It was a miscalculation. Uh, but now we have a different situation. In Ukraine, we have a different situation in Russia. And um, Russia is, Russia society is now acknowledging, the society, not the government, the society is acknowledging that the war is not going to be won. That's the essential thing. Uh, especially in the last days, it's in the, if you're uh, following Russian social media, what you discover is the, the growing awareness of the fact that the war is not going to end up positively, victoriously. Uh, so uh, now we have the recent opinion poll with, with an increasing number of people uh, saying that they are in favor of stopping the war immediately without any conditions. So this is a very um, important and major shift. And it's very interesting. It's taking place right now when we are talking. And uh, to make things even more interesting, uh, I think it's important to point to the fact that most Russians before recently didn't care about the war. So it's not that they supported the war and then started opposing the war. No, they didn't care uh, about the war and, and, and they often didn't even know about the war because special military operation is not a war. It's something which is happening somewhere far away and we have nothing to do with it. Now, on the one hand, uh, Russian society is um, getting awareness of the very fact of the war. And at the same time, the anti-war sentiment is increasing while the anti-war movement is decreasing. This is another interesting thing because the anti-war movement just is exhausted. Just people who uh, were struggling against the war, they are uh, just, uh, many of them are repressed. 
many of them are exhausted physically and, um, and morally, but at the same time, the, and the opposition to the war among the society is increasing. So it's a very interesting contradiction. Okay, so I want to end this now and do another one with you very soon where we explore this further because there's an interesting thing happening in the West now. If you watch the news here, most of the news is how resilient the Russian economy has been, how Russia can sustain this war for a long time, and how Western Europe, let me finish, how Western Europe is actually suffering and the recession is being caused by. A lot of the news here seems to be preparing public opinion for a negotiated settlement in Ukraine. Uh, and so in the next segment with you, let's explore both the economic uh, side of this uh, issue and what are the prospects for some kind of uh, peaceful resolution here? Because it seems, at least my view is, I, I couldn't care less what territory ends up in which oligarch's hands. Uh, I think people need to stop dying here. Um, but anyway, thanks very much. And let's do this again. Absolutely. Okay. okay and uh, thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Thank you.